0: Section six. The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section six. Chapter three. Continued. The Queen marie antoinette presents to history a character which it is of the highest interest to regard as a whole it is the business of her biographers to consider that character as a whole but in her connection with the revolution there is but one aspect of it which is of importance and that is the attitude which such a character was bound to take towards the french nation in the midst of which the queen found herself it is the solution of the whole problem which the queen's action sets before us to apprehend the gulf that separated her not only from the french temperament but from a comprehension of all french society had she been a woman lacking in energy or indecision this alien character in her would have been a small matter and her ignorance of the french in every form of their activity or rather her inability to comprehend them would have been but a private failing productive only of certain local and immediate consequences and not in any way determining the great lines of the revolutionary movement as it was her energy was not only abundant but steadfast it grew more secure in its action as it increased with her years and the initiative which gave that energy its course never vacillated but was always direct She knew her own mind, and she attempted often, with a partial success, to realize her convictions. There was no character in touch with the executive during the first years of the revolution comparable to hers for fixity of purpose and definition of view. It was due to this energy and singleness of aim that her misunderstanding of the material with which she had to deal was of such fatal importance. It was she who chose, before the outbreak of the revolution, the succession of those ministers, both liberal and reactionary, whose unwise plans, upon either side, precipitated violence. It was she who called, and then revoked, and later recalled to office, the wealthy and overestimated Necker, she who substituted for him, and then so inappropriately threw over Kellon, the most national of the precursors of the revolution, and ever after her most bitter enemy, It was she who advised the more particularly irritating details of resistance after the meeting of the first revolutionary parliament. It was she who presided over and helped to warp the plans for the flight of the royal family. It was she who, after this flight had failed, framed a definite scheme for the coercion of the French people by the governments of Europe. It was she who betrayed to foreign chanceries, the french plan of campaign when war had become inevitable finally it was she who inspired the declaration of brunswick which accompanied the invasion of french territory and she was in particular the author of the famous threat therein contained to give over paris to military execution and to hold all the popular authorities responsible with their lives for the restoration of the pre-revolutionary state of affairs As research proceeds, the capital effect of this woman's continual and decided interference will be more and more apparent to historians. Now, Marie Antoinette's conception of mankind, in general, was the conception that you will find prevalent in such societies as that domestic and warm centre which had nourished her childhood, the romantic affection of a few equals, the personal loyalty of a handful of personal servants, the vague histrionic content which permeates the poor at the sight of great equipages and rich accoutrements, the cheers of a crowd when such symbols accompanying monarchy are displayed in the streets. All these were, for Marie Antoinette, the fundamental political feelings of mankind. An absence of them she regarded with bewilderment. An active opposition to them she hated as something at once incomprehensible and positively evil there was in all this illusion, of course a great element of what the english call middle class and the french bourgeois to be quite ignorant of what servitors will say of their masters behind their backs not to appreciate that heroic devotion is the faculty of a few never to have imagined the discontents of men in general and the creative desire for self-expression which inspires men when they act politically Not to know that men, as a whole, and particularly the French people, are not deceived by the accidents of wealth, nor attach any real inferiority to poverty. To despise the common will of numbers, or to doubt its existence. To see society established in a hierarchy not of office, but of leisure. All this may seem to the Democrat a very unnatural and despicable mood. But it was not despicable, still less unnatural, in the case of Marie Antoinette. It was the only experience and the only conception of society which had ever been given her. She had always believed when she gazed upon a mass of the populace that the difference between the crowd and herself was a moral reality. The contrast in external habits between the wealthy, the middle class, and the poor, a contrast ultimately produced by differences in the opportunity and leisure which wealth affords, she thought to be fundamental. Just as children and certain domestics, pet animals, regard such economic accidents in society as something real which differentiates men, so did she. But she happened to nourish this illusion in the midst of the people, and within a day's walk of a capital where the misconception had less hold than in any other district of Europe. Of the traits peculiar to the French, she knew nothing or to put it more strongly she could not believe that they really existed the extremes of cruelty into which this people could fall were inconceivable to her as were also the extremes of courage to which they can rise under the same excitements as arouse them to an excess of hatred but that character in the french which she most utterly failed to foresee or to comprehend was their power of corporate organization that a multitude could instruct and order themselves for a common purpose rapidly acquire and nominate the officers who should bring that purpose to fruition and in general pass in one moment from a mere multitude to an incipient army that was a faculty which the french had always had and have to a peculiar degree and which she like so many of our own contemporaries and especially those of german blood could not believe to be real This faculty in the French, when it took action, and was apparent in the physical struggles of the revolution, seemed to her, to the very end, a sort of nightmare, something which, by all the laws of reality, ought not to be happening, but somehow or other was happening in a manner evilly miraculous. It was her ignorance upon this main point of all that caused her to rely so continually upon the use of regular forces, And of those forces in insufficient numbers. She could not but believe that a few trained soldiery were necessarily the masters of great civilian bodies. Their uniforms were a powerful argument with her, and mere civilian bodies, however numerous, were always in her conception a dust of disparate and inchoate community. She believed there was nothing to attack or resist in popular numbers but the opinion, the fear, or the cupidity of the individual. In this error of judgment concerning the French people, she was not peculiar. It is an error repeated over and over again by foreigners, and even by some native commentators when they seek to account for some national movement of the Gauls. The unlearning of it is the first lesson which those who would either administrate or resist the French should learn. In the matter of religion which the reader may see in these pages to be of such moment in the revolutionary story, the queen was originally far more indifferent than her husband, though she observed a certain measure of personal practice. It was not until her heavy misfortunes came upon her that any degree of personal devotion appeared in her daily life. Though it must be admitted that by a sort of premonition of disaster she turned to religion in the months immediately preceding the outbreak of the reform it remains to describe the personal effects she had upon those who were in her immediate presence most of the french aristocracy she repelled the same misfortune which made her unable to understand the french temperament as a whole divorced her from that particular corner of it which took the shape of french aristocratic tradition she did not understand its stiffness its exactitude its brilliancy or its hardness and she heartily disliked all four. On this account, she produced in the great families of her court, and especially upon the women of them, an effect of vulgarity. Had she survived, and had her misfortunes not been so tragic in intensity, the legend she would have left in French society would certainly have been one of off-handed carelessness, self-indulgence, and lack of dignity, which have for the French of that rank the savour of a loud voice a bad accent and an insufficient usage in the rules of daily conduct leave upon what is left of a corresponding rank in england today. she was on the other hand easily deceived by the flattery of place-seekers and the great power which she wielded in politics just before the revolution broke out made her as it were a sort of butt of the politicians they haunted her presence they depended upon her patronage and at the same time they secretly ridiculed her. Her carriage, which was designed to impress onlookers, and did have that effect upon most foreigners, seemed to most of the French observers, of a rank which permitted them to approach her familiarly, somewhat theatrical and sometimes actually absurd. The earnestness which she displayed in several lines of conduct, and notably in her determined animosity to certain characters, as that of Lafayette, for instance, was of an open and violent sort which seemed to them merely brutal and unintelligent her luxury moreover was noticed by the refined world of versailles to be hardly ever of her own choosing but nearly always practiced in imitation of others in connection with that trait of luxury the reader must appreciate at the outset that it was grievously exaggerated by her contemporaries and has been still more exaggerated by posterity she was not a very frivolous, still less a dissipated woman. She was woefully loose in tongue, but she was certainly virtuous. She gambled, but as the times went, and the supposed unlimited fortune of the crown, her gambling was not often excessive. Her expenditure upon jewellery and dress would be thought most moderate to-day in the case of any lady of our wealthier families. On the other hand, her whims were continual and as continually changing especially in the earlier part of her life. Since that surrounding world of the court which she misunderstood, and which had no sympathy with her, was ready to find some handle against her, that handle of dissipation was the easiest for them to seize, but the accusation was not a just one. Had fortune made her the wife of a poor man in a lower class of society, Marie Antoinette would have been a capable housewife, Her abundant energy would have found a proper channel, and she was in no way by nature extravagant. She had a few very passionate, somewhat too sentimental friendships, some of which were returned, others of which their objects exploited to their own advantage. The two most famous were her friendship for the Princess de Limbeau and for Madame de Polignac. These moved her not infrequently to unwise acts of patronage, which were immediately seized by the popular voice and turned against her. They were among the few weaknesses apparent in her general temper. They were certainly ill balanced and ill judged. She indulged also in a number of small and unimportant flirtations, which might almost be called the routine of her rank and world. She had but one great affection in her life for the other sex and it was most ardently returned. Its object was a Swedish noble of her own age, the very opposite of the French in his temper, romantically chivalrous, unpractical in the extreme, gentle, intensely reserved. His name, Count Axel de Fersen. The affair remained pure, but she loved him with her whole heart, and in the last months of her tragedy this emotion must be regarded as the chief concern of her soul. They saw each other, but very rarely Often they were separated for years. It was this, perhaps, which lent both glamour and fidelity to the strange romance. The end of section six.